This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Dallas Jenkins. So he is a film and television director, writer, and producer, and he's the creator, director, and co-writer of The Chosen. So guys, you guys, especially in this audience, you love The Chosen. This is an episodic season-based series about Jesus and the apostles, okay? And so this is the largest crowdfunded film project or a television film project of all time. And I think by now we can say it's the most successful. We're about to go into season three. So guys, if you're listening to this on time, Season three launches this Friday in theaters. So they're doing the first two episodes of season three on on film on the big screen on November the 18th, this Friday. And that's the first two episodes. And then the rest of the season will start being released in December. So if you can't make it to the theaters to check this out, obviously it'll be available in the app. But guys, the cool thing about this is you guys all have your favorite shows. I mean, in this show, we mentioned Breaking Bad and and Game of Thrones and, and Rome and the, the Office, and everybody has their favorite show. And maybe you're paying for a, a service to get that a show, or maybe you paid for the DVD box sets back in the day or something like that. But this show is completely free, completely free. You don't even have to give them your email. You can download the app. Guys, all this will be in the show notes, but it is literally one of the easiest things in the entire world to watch. And the, the thing about this interview and about this, this series is, you know, I, I came into the series and I, I found it during season two and I went back to watching season one. It is one of the best portrayals I've seen of Jesus and the apostles because it's, it goes into what it was like to potentially walk around with these people. And so that's what we're going to talk about in this interview. We're going to talk about how people get really kind of offended by the fact that they show some things in the chosen that we don't see in scripture. And part of it is so that you can get a better sense of maybe what these people were doing in the first century at the time. And so we, we go into what does he do with all that criticism that comes from the show? We're going to go into, you know, where he got the idea for the chosen and kind of how his background and in Hollywood and other things kind of led to that. Why not just do, you know, a, a movie or a mini series like everybody else? Why do episodic seasons? We dig into some stuff that's going to be coming with season three. We're going to be digging into, you know, how he found Jonathan Rumi, who is the the actor that portrays Jesus, who is, in my opinion, the best Jesus that we have seen on film. You know, why he he's casting people or, you know, having people work on this TV series that aren't Christians, you know, people that come from all these different worldviews and walks of life. What does the future of this look like? How are they going to wrap up the story in seven seasons? We talk about the Lion of Judah, and I specifically ask him if we're going to see a depiction of Jesus clearing the temple, right? My favorite example of the line of Judah. And I really thought his answer was interesting. So you guys are going to have to stick around for that. And before we get into the interview, I do want to bring up our sponsor for today's show, and that is the upper room and the King's council. So as I've talked about on the show before, this is big time attention to business owners, entrepreneurs, but also a lot of soon to be entrepreneurs. A lot of soon to be entrepreneurs have taken advantage of what I'm about to talk about. But the mission of the upper room and the King's council is to create wealth and provision for the purpose of establishing God's covenant on earth. And so the way that they're able to do that, because there's a lot of ways to do it, is they are equipping entrepreneurs with everything that they will need. So the tools, the systems, the frameworks necessary for them to discover and deploy their God-given vision into the marketplace, right? Because that's where a lot of these changes are going to be happening. And one of the ways they do that is with the upper room mastermind. So there are a lot of mastermind groups out there where they get like-minded entrepreneurs together and they kind of get them all excited. But this is a Christ-centered 
gospel-centered, biblically-centered mastermind group, and you're not going to find a whole lot of those out there for bold entrepreneurs in the Christian space. There's just not really a whole lot about that. So if that's something that you're seeking, the upper room could potentially be for you, and I think it's something that you should at least check out. It's very, very customizable. I've spoken to their group before. If you do want more information on this, go back to episode 355 of this podcast. That's with Riley Meek. It's called The King Entrepreneurship and Money. He is the founder of the upper room in the King's Council, but in that interview, he did something kind of special. He wanted to make sure that you guys could get specifically in touch with him because a lot of times the, the main person keeps himself completely isolated, but he wants you all in this audience to reach out to him directly. If you think you can get some value out of some of the tools that they're giving to entrepreneurs and soon to be entrepreneurs. So he wants you to text upper room. That's the words upper room to 727-472-3860. That will be in the show notes. So if you're driving, don't be dangerous. You can check it out later. Upper room to 727-472-3860 to get an application to schedule an actual one-on-one with Riley Meek, the upper room in the King's Council founder. So again, that's upper room. That's U-P-P-E-R space R-O-O-M to 727-472-3860 to schedule your one-on-one with the founder of the upper room in the King's Council, Riley Meek. So guys, I had so much fun with Dallas in this interview. We didn't have all the time in the world, but we got a lot of content uh, cranked into this very, very small uh, amount of time. We had under an hour to pull this off. I think we did it, but guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Dallas Jenkins, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you having me on. Well, no one else is going to know that this happened, but I'm just going to be straight up honest. I just, I haven't, I'm having to re-ask this question that I'm asking you because I just asked it two seconds ago, but I forgot to hit the appropriate button. So here we go. Now you're fully prepared for this massive first question. So I always like to get people to describe who they are and where they came from a little bit, but you've got a unique background. So I don't want to, you know, take you in a direction that you don't necessarily want to talk about, but I want to know how you got into the world of film and television. Did it have anything to do with your dad, Jerry, who wrote the left behind novels that everyone in my audience knows about? You know, you've spent the majority, if not all of your career in the, you know, faith-based entertainment industry. So jump off from wherever you want to jump off in that completely convoluted introductory question. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, we, we no longer have enough time, I guess. Uh, oh, dang it. Uh, but uh, no, so specific to your question, I would say I, I, when I was a freshman in high school at that time, I was a jock. I was really into sports. I played multiple sports, wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Uh, sports was one of my primary obsessions. I was also a believer. I'd been a believer uh, most of my life, and and uh, that was another obsession of mine. But when I was a freshman in high school, I was watching TV and saw the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. Uh, it's a movie from the 70s with Jack Nicholson, and that that changed the course of my life. When I watched that movie, and ironically enough, the scene that changed me and made me want to make movies was actually related to sports broadcasting. Okay. Jack Nicholson is denied the opportunity to watch the World Series while he's in this mental institution. And uh, so he, and as he's pouting, he goes over, sits in front of the TV and starts broadcasting on his own a fake game at an mm-hmm. empty, you know, at a blank screen. And uh, the other inmates start getting into it and cheering. And uh, it was so emotionally powerful I was practically standing up. I was just, Mm. I just was so into it. And I thought, whatever that is, I want to do that. I want to arouse an audience's what this is doing for me. And I did think at the time too, like, imagine if you could do that from a faith perspective, if you could Mm. do that in a a story that reflects my life and experience and and my passions and beliefs, um, which at the time, uh, you you know, as a, you couldn't find much at all that was watchable. Um, that's still right. true to some extent, but things have gotten a lot better. But back then, if you're a Christian and you want to watch something that reflects your faith, um, you're relegated primarily to church basement videos. 
And so I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to tell stories, uh, but tell them in, in the, with the kind of quality that that movie had. Um, so the, the second thing that shifted my course was I was mowing the lawn. Um, I'd started my career. I'd done a couple of movies. Um, I was thinking through what my next project was going to be. And I was mowing the lawn in Los Angeles. And I felt this has happened maybe, I mean, it's less, probably less than five times in my life where you really feel God making something very clear on your heart. It's as though he's speaking to you. It's not an inaudible voice, but, but it's crystal clear. And it was like, I want you to make movies for my people too. Like quit apologizing. Cause it's a very common thing for filmmakers of faith to do is like, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not a Christian filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker who happens to be a Christian and mm. I faith-based movies suck. We all know that I I'm distancing myself from that. Mm. That was kind of my thing. And, and I felt God kind of laying on my heart, like quit, quit apologizing for me. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with a lot of faith-based movies, isn't that they're, um, the thing that turns people off, isn't that they're gospel centered or isn't that they have a strong message. It's that they're not usually good. They're not, yeah, accurate. they suck. They're, not, they're terrible. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and what's uh, false sentimentality is, is something that's accused of for, for a lot of projects, especially Christian projects. And when you're, when you're overly sentimental, the reason that, 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 that term gets applied is because something isn't true. So when you're watching a movie and there's a, a resolution that feels unrealistic, that's what makes it falsely sentimental. That's what makes it overly sentimental. Mm. And so um, it, I just realized, okay, it's not being specific or being explicit even that turns people away. It's being false. It's being unfair. It's being, it's glossing over the truth. And so um, anyway, I, I decided, all right, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to unabashedly be make movies and TV uh, that reflect my faith. I'm not going to apologize for it. And uh, my, the next movie I did was a movie called what if, which came out back in 2010, the budget was like $600,000. Mm. Um, it's but that movie was clear, easily the best thing that I'd done up to that point. It still continues to, to generate profit um, 12, 13 years later, resonated really well, had a strong message, but was also, I believe, particularly for its budget, a good movie. And I, I just, that from then on, I just said, if this, if this doesn't reflect my faith, if this doesn't point people to Jesus in some way, it's just not worth my time. So that is what, now there's a lot more to it, including a significant, massive career failure that left me wanting to quit the business um, before I did The Chosen. But those are the two moments that I think most answer your question of why did I get into this business? And then why did I actually embrace or, or you know, work within the, the faith space. Well, I, one thing that you're kind of talking about and talking about other content, because we've had other Christian content creators on here, Harold Kronk being one of them. And he said, yeah. And so he has some of the same sentiments to where it's like, no, 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 people don't hate your movie because it's Christian. They hate it because it stinks. It's, it's just a horrible movie. But I think it's also the inauthenticity. And I'm sure if that's how, how you could call the word, but that it's inauthentic. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't ring true. I just walked to watch a documentary yesterday that I'll leave nameless that I just didn't really like it because I was like, I just don't believe you. The, the person yeah. running this is like, I don't believe you're actually curious about that. And so right. whenever you get into the more gritty stuff and you get into the more real things, well, you open yourself up to, uh, you know, negative audience reception potentially. And we'll, we'll maybe get to that here in a second, but, um, people in my audience are going to hate me if I don't actually ask you and maybe potentially waste a little bit of time. Give us the spark notes version about what almost bounced you out of the business. Because I always love the stories of zigging when zagging should have happened. And Hey, we wouldn't have gotten, you know, this car, if this, you know, explosion hadn't happened underground at some point 200 years ago. So give us sure. the, the real short version of that story. 
Um, so I had an opportunity in 2020, uh, 2016 for my dream situation, which was I had left Hollywood uh, or, or I'd left Los Angeles. I was still making product, but I had moved back to Chicago where I'd grown up and I was working at a mega church in Chicago. And the idea was to make movies, but to be financed by the church. And, mm. and, uh, and, and, and this was a really big church and they had a lot of resources. So it was a great opportunity for me to move my family back to the Midwest, which is, which, which is where I grew up. And, uh, I did a short film for my church's Christmas Eve service. And that short film got in the hands of a producer named Jason Blum. Mm. Jason Blum is one of the top producers in Hollywood. He's produced nearly all of the most successful horror films of the last 10 years, you know, sinister, insidious, get out up. I mean, just, uh, you know, paranormal activity. I mean, the guy is a, is a mm. giant in the horror film community. And uh, so he specializes in low budget films that make, you know, tens of millions of dollars and a really good filmmaker, a really good producer. He, long story short, saw my short film, loved it, wanted to get into the faith space because mm. same reason he wanted to get into the horse space. He saw an opportunity, thinks there's a niche audience there that can be, uh, that, that, that can be utilized and uh, make a lot of money. Now, at the same time, WWE, the wrestling company, they also make films. They're also interested in the faith space, similar mm. reasons. They're brilliant at niche marketing and understanding an audience that is typically underserved. And so they worked with Jason and they were going to, and so they said, look, they reached out to me, you know, they love the short film. What else you got? I had this feature film that I was developing and, and, uh, they were all excited about it. WWE was going to finance it. Jason and his company were going to produce it. So a horror film company, a wrestling company and a church in Elgin, Illinois, uh, <laughs> combined to make a Hollywood production. And it was a very explicit faith-based film. It's called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. Um, and it's a film that I'm still proud of. Um, and they were excited about it. We made the movie. Um, when it tested, they did test audiences. It tested higher than any movie that either of those companies had ever done. It was really exciting. They were thrilled about it. I, they, they wanted to do other movies with me. So we started developing future projects. I was going to do five projects over the next 10 years. Everything was great. Then the movie came out in 2017 and completely bombed. I mean, it was lower than their lowest projections. Within hours, they knew the numbers sucked. They knew that it was over. They let me know we won't be doing future projects with you. I mean, they were nice about it, but obviously they were like, we're going to go back to doing what we do best. We don't mm. get the faith market. And uh, I was left home alone with my wife, crying and praying and confused and wondering, like, I thought God was in this. I didn't, I'd done this for God, I, I, at least I thought. Um, I think when you look back on it, my motives were just as much about self and as much about affirmation um, as particularly Hollywood affirmation, particularly uh, the affirmation that comes from success as I was motivated by anything else. But um, I was just confused. I thought it just seems so obvious that God had been behind this. There were so many doors that had opened at the right times. And, uh, and then I go, I guess he wasn't. I guess I was wrong. Maybe this business isn't for me. And I started to wrestle with what that meant and that fact that I might never be able to make another project again. And uh, God, uh, remember how I mentioned earlier that I was mowing my lawn and I felt this, you know, mm. that God speaking to me very clearly. Well, he did the same thing with my wife in that moment. He pointed her to the feeding of the 5,000, the story in the Gospels, very famous story, obviously. And um, so he was like, read this story. And, and so Amanda and I, my wife, uh, dug into the story and we're trying to understand what God might have for us in that. And the, the, the main thing that we got gleaned from it was that Jesus was actually responsible for the hunger that led to the need for the miracle. See what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. like people are hungry, they desperately need food. Jesus knows that. Disciples come up and tell him, he's like, oh yeah, I know. 
And, 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 and they say, well, we're going to send these people home to get food. He's like, no, no, we can't. If they're so weak and hungry, if we send them home, they're going to faint along the way. And it was his fault. He's the one who caused their hunger. Mm. Till the only thing left to satisfy it was him. And it was a miracle. So we thought, okay, that's the lesson. We, God was in this. He's leading us to this place of desperation. And now the miracle is going to come. And we thought the miracle was going to be that the box office numbers were going to turn around. Well, that didn't happen. And that wasn't the lesson. Now, I think part of the lesson that we were supposed to learn was that God, just because something doesn't succeed on a traditional level doesn't mean God wasn't in it. But I was still trying to figure out what is it that God has for us in this and what's my future. So that night I was doing what I'm guessing you've done before, what I'm guessing a lot of your listeners have done before is uh, like a postmortem, an analysis. Yeah. You know, something doesn't work. Uh, you, you try to figure out why. You mentioned to me, you know, before that you've had military, you know, guests from the military on, you've got people in the audience who've done this. It's a very common thing, obviously, in the military. You know, you do a pre-mortem and a post-mortem. I don't know if they use those terms, but you, you know, you analyze everything that can go wrong. Then when something does go wrong, you figure out why. Well, that's what I was doing, a 15-page memo. Here's what I did wrong. Here's my fault in it. I wasn't trying to shirk, uh, shirk responsibility, but it's four o'clock in the morning. I am writing out this long memo and uh, up pops on my computer screen from someone I've never met, actually. They were, we were just Facebook friends. Uh, we'd probably talked once a year and uh, on Facebook. Pops up a message out of the blue, doesn't say anything else other than this. Remember, your job is not to feed the 5,000. Your job is only to provide the loaves and fish. And I was like, looking around thinking maybe my computer had been recording <laughs> what I'd been saying that day. Right. I was genuinely like confused. Like, who did I tell? How does he know? I mean, we didn't tell anyone this. How does he know to say something like that? So I, I respond to him and I go, what are you doing up at four in the morning? He says, well, I'm in Romania right now. I'm on a different time zone. Um, and I'm visiting my brother and I was walking home from the grocery store. And, and, uh, and I said, can I ask you why you sent that to me? And he says, Oh, well, that wasn't me. God told me to tell you that. And he had had a moment where he was walking home. He had decided to look up the box office numbers for the, for the movie because he had loved the movie and was curious about it, saw that it was a bomb, felt sorry for me, you know, and, uh, and God just told him just explicitly and clearly, tell Dallas it's not his job to feed the 5,000, it's only to provide the loaves and fish. Mm. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I barely know the guy. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to, it's very presumptuous to, to text him something like that when he's down. And uh, God just kept hammering him, so he decided to listen. And uh, so sent me that Facebook message. Didn't expect a response because he knew what time it was. Mm. And, uh, and, the, and the rest is history. And that moment changed my life. Um, it may seem obvious to you, that concept. But to me, you know, I was in my 40s before God had to really teach it to me because I was someone who did feel responsible for results. I was someone who did. I mean, I, I, there was a lot riding on my shoulders. And the fact that <clears throat> my loaves and fish didn't feed 5,000 people was very disappointing and discouraging. And, uh, and, and that lesson of you're responsible to make the best five loaves and two fish that you can, and you hand them to God. And if he deems them worthy of acceptance, the transaction's over. Mm -hmm. What he chooses to do with it or not do with it is not up to you. And, um, and that changed my life. And in that moment, I became okay if I never made another movie. I just wanted to be in God's will. I just wanted to provide loaves and fish that were acceptable to him. And when you get to that point, when you truly get to that point, it doesn't come easily. Sometimes it takes a crisis or sometimes it just takes discipline mm. of you replacing your narcissistic or materialistic or selfish thoughts with scripture. Whenever they come up, you just make it a habit. You know, you turn it into a habit. Uh, sometimes that's what it takes to change your, to change your brain, to change your heart. But in that moment I was changed. And when it happens, it's a superpower. You truly become like impervious to criticism. 
which, you know, spoiler alert, I mean, that happens every day with The Chosen um, and, you know, from thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. I don't care because all I care about is giving loaves and fish to God. So that's what allowed me to be okay with what happened next, which was things like, oh, remember that short film I wrote a year and a half ago that I put on the shelf because I was doing this big Hollywood movie? Uh, and I was, it was another short film for my church about the birth of Christ from the perspective of the shepherds. All right, I'll go ahead and do that, you know, for my church. And uh, it feels like a small loaf and a small fish, big step down from a Hollywood movie. And I'm filming it on my friend's farm in Illinois, 20 minutes from my house. But while I'm doing it, I feel more in my wheelhouse than, I, than any other project that I do. This feels right. This feels what I'm supposed to do. That's when I had the idea for The Chosen. And, um, and, and so that concept of the loaves and fish allowed me to be open to some of the ridiculous ideas that led to the success of The Chosen, like the crowdfunding and all these things that I thought were ridiculous and would never work. Uh, and all the moments throughout the history of these the, the four or five years of this show where I've been kind of at the end of myself and my ideas weren't working and then something came along that made it so much better. All those things um, are kind of a, a result, not kind of, they are a result of, of my accepting of that concept of the loaves and fish. When I think it's interesting because, you know, control the controllables, obviously that's, that's good wisdom that you could take out of that situation. But it's interesting that you also bring up that story from scripture because that's going to, I think, feature very prominently in season three yes. of The Chosen. But we, we obviously need to step back to the very beginning. You, you talked about a little bit there in terms of kind of how you got the idea, how you got the, the ball rolling, and you've, you've gone crowdfunding. I think at this point, everyone kind of knows, hey, this is the largest crowdfunded thing ever produced and those types of things. I think anyone that knows anything about The Chosen knows that. What I'm curious about is why did you choose to do a bunch of episodic seasons as opposed yeah. to what everyone else does, which is a movie or a mini series or, or something that's made directly for television because that was the unique thing. And then here in a second, I got another question, which is going to tell you kind of why I got so interested in The Chosen. But let's start there. Why, why do it and set it up that way? Well, the answer is kind of in your in your in your question, which is th that's what everyone else had done was movies and miniseries. Now, I don't do things just to be different, but Anytime you do a piece of art, uh, there are several questions you have to answer for yourself. One of them is, of course, does this reflect my soul, my heart? Is this something I want said? Um, is this something God wants said? I, I think that's important if you're a believer. Uh, but then also, d does this fill a need? Is there a hole in the marketplace, mm -hmm. in the pop culture conversation that needs to be filled? Has, has, do I have something to say that hasn't been explicitly said before? And I believe that I did. And I think that the, the multi-season element is, I believe, if you were going to put on the Mount Rushmore of what are the, th the four things that have most been responsible for the response to the show. One of them is the nature of it, the multi-season element of mm -hmm. it, and here's why. I happen to be um, binge-watching The Wire, uh, the HBO show yeah. from the 90s, I believe. I don't remember how old it is, but it's uh, it's, it's this great show, obviously not exactly a uh, family-friendly, um, not something you'd watch in a church, but yeah. it's a brilliant show. And I would watch it every day when I was on my, on the treadmill and working out and whatnot. And one of the things that I picked up on, and I, I love binge watching shows. There are lots of shows that have influenced the chosen. Um, but the thing that I love about television is the time you can take to develop the characters and the, the relationship that you as a viewer develop with the characters where you over the course of episodes and seasons mm. really see the world through their eyes. You, you connect with them. You want to know what happens to them. And that ultimately becomes what you care most about in a show is the characters. And I think that's also applies to these, um, these universes that you see even in movies like the Marvel cinematic universe, 20 plus movies to where now you've, They've done a brilliant job of mm. establishing storylines and arcs that take place over the course of multiple movies and multiple years. 
And that allows you to not have to rush through anything, uh, any story points. And so what's always happened to me in movies and miniseries about Jesus is they go from miracle to miracle, Bible verse to Bible verse. There's never any connection or rarely any connection with anyone that Jesus impacts. Um, the disciples are all the same. I, I, someone once said in, in Jesus movies, there's three disciples. Uh, there's Peter, because he's the famous one. There's Judas, because he's the betrayer. And then there's the other 10 disciples. They're all one. They all yeah. look and sound the same. And I think that's true. Well, in this, with a TV show, we have the time to develop things. We have mm. time to develop backstories, to develop character arcs. Uh, we don't have to rush it. And I think that is really a cheat code for um, being able to really make this story emotionally impactful, which is what I believe has been missing from almost every other Jesus project I've ever seen. I've never felt emotionally connected other than perhaps the passion, which one of the reasons that worked was because it was two hours that was devoted to a very, very specific moment. It wasn't right. trying to cover that, the death of Christ and his miracles and the, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection, all this stuff. It was just And it like, still it had flashbacks that helped, you know, yeah. kind of set things, but yeah, you're right. And when you ask people, you know, if I, I believe if you asked someone, um, what are your three favorite moments in the Passion of the Christ? If you've seen that movie, mm -hmm. I would bet you that 90% of people would include in those three, the moment of Jesus and his mother and he's building the table. Exactly. And, and, and he lifts her and, up and puts her on the table. Exactly. Yeah, splashes water on her and stuff like that. And I tell people the chosen, that's what the chosen is. It's, it's a bunch of those moments. Um, it's, and, and I think that's been the, the, the secret sauce of the show. And that's why I wanted to do a multi-season show, um, is because not only has it never been done before, not only does it allow me the freedom to do things and say things that haven't been said before about the life of Christ from the, from the perspective of media. Right. Um, I don't think I'm reinventing the wheel much when it comes to what people say when they preach a sermon, they try to give you a historical context and whatnot. But anyway, I'm not going to keep rambling about that, but I think that's been the, the key to, uh, to, to, to allowing people to have an emotional connection to these stories as opposed to strictly a, oh, that's a Bible verse now right. set to screen. That's interesting well, <laughs> as opposed to I'm actually viscerally engaged with it. No, absolutely. And I think it allows for reinvestment because how many people do you hear that will re-watch Breaking Bad? They will re-watch Rome. They will re-watch The Office or they re-watch things. They will reinvest in these characters that they already know the ending to because they're noticing and picking up in nuances of these people's personalities. And as soon as you said favorite moment from the passion, I immediately went to that thing because it showed the personhood of Jesus, not, you know, Jesus, the, the, the minister or Jesus, the rabbi or Jesus, any of those things. So that's very, very interesting. But what that opened you up to, and you obviously know this, you mentioned it earlier, it opens you up to some critiques from, from, from folks. And so this series, The Chosen, obviously is very well uh, regarded by critics and by the audience in general, but literally 30 minutes before you clicked on this, I'm just scrolling through Twitter, wasting time. And I literally see this pop up by a guy that I'm not even following. His name is John Mason at Living God's Truth. He literally posted this less than an hour ago. The creators of The Chosen and The Passion of the Christ have this in common. By their own words, they worship a different Christ than the one revealed in Scripture. What's worse is the millions of Christians who support their blatant inaccuracy in handling the word of truth. So obviously, you've made a lot of people very, very sensitive because of the themes you tackle in the show. It starts very, very dark. Episode one, season one starts very, very dark, which I appreciate. I thought that was a great place to start. Caught, caught some people off guard. But then you talk about things that are abiblical. Because we don't have depictions of Jesus just hanging out. We don't have depictions from scripture of Jesus walking into a house and they're like, oh yeah, that room's haunted. And he's like, oh, I want that one. Even though that's hilarious. It's a hilarious moment from the show. And I know specifically a lot of people were very uncomfortable with seeing Jesus depicted as preparing the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew. Right. They just assumed that he stood there 
at the mount with all the people and just bleh, just you know put it out there as if he wasn't actually a human being and right. part of the Godhead. So talk to me a little bit about that, because obviously if you were to read all those comments and, and take them into your you know matrix of decision-making, you would have never even started the show, but talk to me about yeah. some of the critiques people have about, Hey, this isn't even biblical. You shouldn't watch it. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot to unpack there, but it's very important. So first of all, uh, that Twitter comment, I hadn't heard, I hadn't seen that of course, but um, that Twitter comment all has in common uh, with uh, this, with, with, 99% of the most extreme critiques of the show. It says something false. Um, so when that Twitter comment says, the creator of The Chosen outright said he worships a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. <laughs> right. Like, bald-faced lie. He's simply lying. Like, I'm a born-again evangelical believer, uh, passionate about God's word. Now, what he's referring to is that several years ago, I made the comment that I know some people of the LDS faith and I said, those people of the LDS faith love the same Jesus that I do. And that comment broke the minds and hearts of several people uh, who are, have now extrapolated that and have come to the belief that either oh, Dallas is a Mormon or Dallas says that Mormons believe the same Jesus. I didn't make those kinds of uh, general generalizations like they're doing. Mm. I was referring to some specific people. When I talk, I have nuance, uh, which is a crazy concept in today's social media world. But words are extremely important. They're extremely specific. And uh, but however, these people who are, you know, the kind of the doctrine or the the uh, discernment police, um, which I do believe discernment is vitally important. I don't believe sure. you should watch the show if you feel like there's something wrong with it. Um, I do believe that the show is is open to criticism and it should be because we're talking about the, you know, the the, the, the savior of the world. But when you critique, you should be accurate. And 99%, I'm not exaggerating here, of when I see the YouTube videos of like, Dallas Jenkins is a heretic, or Dallas Jenkins said, quote, blank. I, I, oh, I can't tell you how many times they're, they're just blatantly false. Hmm. Like they'll put quote marks around a phrase that I didn't actually say. By definition, that's false. So that makes it easy to ignore it, makes it easy to, to laugh at it, um, which I do most of it. Um, and occasionally people that I respect will might have a critique and I take that, you know, I take that seriously and we, we consider all of that. So there's that. The other piece of it is, um, you're right. If I cared about what people said, positive or negative, then I couldn't make the show. Mm -hmm. I believe the show would be crippled if when I sat down at the computer to write an episode, I was thinking of making sure that I pleased more people or, yeah. or, uh, avoided the criticisms of other people. I don't think about it and I can't. I am pleasing or trying to please God. That is my number one goal and my wife. <laughs> and, uh, and of course we have a, we have a, a, a consultants and, uh, the conservative Bible believers, you know, scholars who review our scripts. And when they have a critique, if it's something that I believe is legitimate and, and we, we talk back and forth about it, I of course will make an, will make a change. Um, and that said, I don't make the show to avoid criticism or to gain praise. So that's just not a factor with me. And so when I get critiques like that, um, I don't feel the need to defend them because it doesn't bother me. Now, occasionally when some, thing, some people are saying things that are inaccurate and impacting our fans and making our fans question and ask me, Dallas, this person said this, they claimed this, what do you say? I will occasionally respond because I do believe that within my circle of influence, within my universe, 
um, I will, I want to have that conversation on our terms, but I'm not going to go to their world and their universe and get online, try to defend myself or try to explain because there's no win in that. They control the narrative. Mm -hmm. They're going to just continue to take things out of context and expand on them. And so I'm just not going to play that game. And I don't respect or have time for people who are inaccurate in their critiques. I have time for critiques. I just don't have yeah. time for inaccurate, unfair critiques. So furthermore, to your point about the sermon, this is a great example of the kind of things that, that happened. So did Jesus stand on the Sermon on the Mount and did the words just come to him and he just spilled out those four chapters of the book of Matthew? Uh, maybe I'm wrong, three or four chapters of the book of Matthew. And they just came out. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, I believe that those teachings are probably a collection of times that he said them multiple times. I don't believe that he just sat down once, delivered the Sermon on the Mount, so-called, and then that was the only time that was ever delivered. Matthew happened to write it all down in the moment and uh, captured it perfectly and then put it onto the, put it into the, to his gospel. I believe that Jesus probably said those things dozens and dozens of times. Uh, scholars believe that. Most scholars believe that, too, that it was probably a collection of, his, of, of, of some of these teachings. Or it could have been he sat down on a mount, people gathered, and he just spilled it all out. That's certainly possible. Is it also possible that when he was alone with the Lord— and when he was in the days leading up to the delivery of this, that he was working out the best way to deliver some of these things because mm -hmm. he speaks to audiences of all kinds. And that when he, because he is a personal God, because he is a personal savior, because throughout the gospels, you see him call people to follow him or heal people unique in their circumstance. And that when he speaks to the masses, he wants to deliver things in the most um, palatable way possible which is why he used parables so often, which is why he dumbed things down, quote unquote. Again, don't overreact to that term. I'm just saying he made things simple and easy to understand concepts that were very difficult. Also, there were times when he said, some people will not understand this and that's okay. Let he, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So do I believe that preparing for a sermon is a violation of the character of Jesus in the gospels? Absolutely not. Is it possible that that never happened? Absolutely. So if someone says, I don't believe Jesus would have prepared a sermon, fine, I'm not going to argue with you. There's no right. indication in scripture. There's no scripture verse that says, and then Jesus went off and worked through the words of his sermon. Now it does talk about Jesus praying desperately to God. He prayed for favor. He prayed for permission. He uh, said multiple times that the, all his power comes from the Lord. So the, I believe that he oftentimes was asking God the Father for uh, for he for for power for mm -hmm. uh, for insight for wisdom um, because as Philippians says he did not count he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped uh, so that's a pretty radical verse to talk about to say that Jesus when he came to earth actually gave up some of what he had when he was on the throne in heaven what exactly that looks like I don't think any of us know for sure but the reason that I'm taking so much time on that one particular incident because it's probably the thing that I've been most critiqued for is mm -hmm. sermon prep the 10 seconds of sermon prep mm -hmm. um, is because I think that's a really good example of we don't know exactly what happened and when you assert in a YouTube comment that you have figured out things that have been debated <laughs> by scholars for hundreds and hundreds of years and you're going to solve the issue with a YouTube comment I just don't have that level of arrogance um, I'm going I'm willing to say I don't know for sure but I think it's plausible, and I think it's actually really beautiful, and uh, and, and so we're gonna we're gonna do that. If it wasn't plausible in my mind, I wouldn't have done it. But anyway, that's a very long answer to your question. But these are extraordinarily important topics, and I do believe that uh, that it's important to make sure that people know that even when we disagree, I take this very seriously. I come from it from a very thoughtful, prayerful perspective, and a perspective that believes in the uh, unabashed 
uh, uh, truth of God's word. And I am a conservative evangelical. Uh, I stand proudly on that. The fact that there happen to be uh, LDS folks, Catholic folks, uh, non-believers uh, in the cast and crew uh, does not change the content of the of the show. Well, no, I appreciate you going into all that detail. And even specifically, uh, you're not making a historical documentary. Like you are making an episodic, you know. It's fan fiction. I mean, someone, a pastor once called it fan fiction. And I thought, you know, that's actually not an inaccurate statement. We're not yeah. replacing the Bible. We haven't added to the Bible because we're not the Bible. The Bible has not changed since the show came out. And uh, and millions and millions of people have outright said publicly, I'm reading the Bible more than ever because of the show. That's great. No one has said, because of the show, I no longer have to read the Bible because this is my new truth. Right. No one has said that. And uh, anyone who keeps using that as an excuse for why the show is wrong is is seeing things through their own filter and not through the filter of what is actually happening. Well, and this is good advice. And I'm sure you'd co-sign this, uh, you know, seeing how you couched everything, but this is good advice for everybody else as well. Don't take criticism from people you're not willing to take advice from. And so if you're not going to change what you're going to do in this show based That's a great on word. critique and, and advice, like then, then don't take the critiques to heart because I'm the guy that I don't care how many five-star reviews I get in a row. It's that one-star review and not knowing who the person is. That's the one that's sticky. I can still right now go through the Rolodex of my one-star reviews and I know what they said. I know what their critiques are. And then and I let those things bother me, but I'm not going to really get onto that because we need to move on to finding Jesus. And I, I don't mean that like in the, you know, accepting <laughs> of salvation side. I mean, Jonathan Rumi. So that is the actor that has obviously blown up since taking on this role. So I'll tell you this. Uh, season one of The Chosen had already happened. I think season two was about to come out or had come out. And I'd heard of The Chosen. I'd heard people talk about it. I'd seen some chatter online, but I'd not seen any pictures. I'd not seen any clips. I certainly had not watched an episode. And I was like, ah, it's just another Jesus thing. You know, it's probably going to be corny, you know, similar to some of the things that you said earlier. But the first clip I saw was of Jonathan Rumi and of the disciples. And I'm like, wait a minute. Those look like Middle Eastern Jews. I, was like, I thought the rule was that if you're going to depict, you know, Jesus on film, he had to look like a Danish white guy, you know, with soft features and dirty blonde hair and, you know, blue eyes and those types of things. And maybe just maybe the disciples could look kind of Jewish. Right. But aside from that, that's not how we're supposed to do things. So that piqued my interest. So take me through that whole process of casting people that probably looked like what these people potentially would have looked like during that time. And then how in the world do you go about picking? Yeah, that's the guy that's going to play the most important and most, you know, influential person in the history of humanity. Yeah. Well, uh, the Jonathan thing happened actually seven or eight years ago. I was doing short films for my church at the time. Uh, uh, and I would each good Friday, I would do a short film or vignette that kind of captured some element of the crucifixion. And uh, the first thing I did was a was a short film about the two thieves on the cross. And similar to The Chosen, Jesus actually wasn't the main character. It was actually seeing the whole crucifixion through their eyes and their backstories. And uh, I was casting uh, the two thieves, and Jonathan was one of the people who auditioned for one of the thieves, and he was great. But there were two other guys who were, who were fantastic, perfect for the roles. And the guys who, who auditioned for Jesus, who actually had quite a small role in the, in the short film, were just awful. And I, I needed to find a Jesus. And... Uh, so I thought, well, this Jonathan guy, he wasn't quite what I was looking for with the thieves, but he's a good actor. Let's have him audition. And 10 seconds into his audition, I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, I, I, had, the resp I had the response that everyone else has had, which is th this, this, this feels right. I, I, whatever he's doing, he, he's, it feels like he's inhabiting the, the traits of this person. And so I cast him as Jesus. I remember when I was filming that short film in a rock quarry in Chicago, uh, and he was up on the, on the cross and we were doing the scene. I'm like, this is 
in my opinion, like the best per, per, portrayal of Jesus I've ever seen, because it's 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 it, it 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 combines what I think, other than maybe one or two examples I can think of, few people have ever captured about Jesus in the dozens of portrayals, which is both the kindness and gentleness and the masculinity. Mm. Um, this is a this is a Jesus who's a lion, but he's a tame lion, as it says in Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and so I, Jonathan captures both of those things. And uh, so anyway, we started doing more of those, more vignettes each year, short films, kind of gave us time to kind of work out some of the things that you see in The Chosen, the jokes, the humanity, but also the deity, uh, that kind of unique and odd, d very difficult to portray uh, duality of, of Christ that I so passionately believe in and Jonathan believes in. So that that decision was made easily. That was that was the first decision made when we were casting the show. The other disciples, um, the, the, the rule was, look, I don't care about celebrity. I'm not trying to get star power here. We don't have the money for that anyway. Mm. But here's, I, I am now operating on God's economy. I care about who's right for the role. I'm providing my loaves and fish. If he wants to multiply it and feed the 5,000, that's up to him. So to be right for the role, you have to not only be a great actor, you have to not only fit the part, but fitting the part includes looking like the part. And mm. first century uh, Israel um, did not look like Europe. And so... Uh, we just, we, we uh, part of my demand, it wasn't any kind of political statement or any kind of quota I was trying to fill. It was a, I'm trying to be authentic. And uh, I think authenticity is probably, again, on that Mount Rushmore of things that, that uh, people say about the show that draws them to it is it feels real. It feels human. And part of that is because I believe it's authentic. Uh, it feels dirty. It feels rough. The, first, the opening of episode one, season one, like you said, it starts right in there with a demon possession and, and blood and the Roman occupation and, and, uh, and the oppression and, and the pain and all these, who these people were before they met Jesus. You see Simon as a rough gambler and, you know, I mean, all these things, you know, we don't know for sure if they were true, but we know that, that, that they were historically plausible. Um, and so that, that happens, that's all the way down to the casting. I wanted people who looked like first century Israel. Now we're not going to get it every time. And, mm. and, uh, and, you know, I, I'm sure if you showed me a picture of first century Israel, they might've, it might have looked a little bit different, but I mean, this is plausible. These are olive, olive to dark skinned. Capernaum was a melting pot. So you had people from all different continents who had, who had migrated there because it was a trade route. So uh, we believe it's, it's uh, if not factual, uh, we believe it's uh, certainly plausible. And I think that that was, again, going back to one thing we talked about is when you're inauthentic, especially now, I feel like modern audiences, because we've yeah. been really marinated in docu-series and documentaries for a while to where sure. it's like when things don't feel kind of like that, like anymore, when I go back and watch old Westerns, I can't do it. I have to watch new Westerns that are more gritty, that are more realistic for whatever reason that agrees with my palate more. But Dallas, you brought this up a little bit a second ago, and I kind of want to talk about any conflicts that maybe happen on set because you're a conservative evangelical, but Jonathan's a Catholic. And you know, when you cast the rest of the show, you, you basically alluded to it. Not everybody that acts on camera or works behind the camera believes that Jesus Christ was resurrected on the third day. Right. And you know, for a lot of people, you know, they may have some consternation if the guy that plays Matthew, I'm, I'm just throwing out things like so, because a lot of people talked about his character and kind of how he's portrayed as almost having a little bit of a spectrum-y side to him, which I thought was very, very interesting. But they're like, what if he's not a Christian? What if he's not a believer? That would ruin the show for them because they're like, this guy doesn't take this seriously. But we always have to pull ourselves out. 
every actor is doing make pretend. Like, you know, Chris Hemsworth, he doesn't actually throw a magical hammer at people, you know, during conflicts, you know what I mean? Like he's play acting, like he's, he's doing make pretend. And so, but I kind of want to know, like, how does that work? Like, are there like deep theological debates? Are people sharing the gospel of Christ, like on the set where Christ is being depicted? I'm, I'm just curious about that. Yeah. Uh, well, there haven't been debates on the set much at all. Uh, obviously, the, the, we, we, the cast and crew run the spectrum of belief to non-belief to everything in between and all the different, all, I mean, I can't think of a faith tradition that isn't reflected by somebody in the cast, um, uh, Christian or not. Uh, and then there's plenty of atheists and all that. Uh, we, there's not many debates because people love the show. People love the the story. I mean, the cast and crew of Game of Thrones, I, I doubt had debates over whether or not the spiritual elements of that show were accurate, whether Jon Snow actually raised from the dead, uh, whether there was actually, you know, when people were doing the cast and crew of Lost, I'm sure weren't debating over whether or not there was a smoke monster or whether or not you can actually go back in time. Um, so you don't have to believe that these things actually happened and that Jesus was the savior to be able to portray uh, the people who lived during that time who did believe that. Uh, and again, because the scripts, because they love the scripts, because, I, you know, their words, not mine, the scripts are so good. Um, they're, they're thrilled and happy to be able to portray these people, regardless of their belief system. Now, uh, that's not to say that we don't actually have extraordinarily deep and meaningful conversations about the Gospels. That happens as a result of the fact that they're playing these characters. They have questions about the motivation. They have questions about the story. Some of them didn't know these stories. Some of them look deeper into it. They're asking me questions. I mean, it is a fertile it is a breeding ground for for conversations about the gospel. And uh, several actors have uh, come to a faith uh, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God because of the show. Others have not. Others have, um, but have been more intrigued by it. Others have had their views changed about Christians uh, to some extent who came into it with political or uh, or, or, or biblical or spiritual, you know, assumptions about all what, who Christians were. So that's happened too. And I'm sure there's also been some cases where they're like, yeah, I don't like this. I don't like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, you know, the, the, not most of it's been extraordinarily positive. Um, so uh, we've had multiple stories on the set. Uh, it happens almost every time that there's a scene where someone is either quoting scripture or being called by Jesus to follow mm. something always emotional, like abnormally that's not in the script happens almost without exception. Um, and that's pretty cool and probably says something about the truth of God's word and whatnot. But uh, this is not, we're not a church. Uh, there's not a, a religious litmus test to be involved in our show. Um, uh, if you can do a great job on this show and if, if you can be part of getting the show to the world and our marketing team, uh, if, if you're going to make the show better or make our marketing efforts better, uh, you are welcome. Um, not, your faith system won't impact the content of the show. Uh, the content of the show won't change based on anything other than my and my wife and my, you know, biblical consultants, uh, perspectives. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a great experience. Uh, I love the fact that we have people from all backgrounds on the show, uh, because, uh, it's an opportunity for them to maybe see something they haven't seen before. All right. So let's talk about season three. So obviously the first two seasons have done incredibly well. You've teed up the Sermon on the Mount. The The teaser trailer just came out here recently. But guys, if you're listening to this on time, season three launches this Friday, November the 18th. But it doesn't just launch on the app. It actually launches in theaters. And my understanding is that the rest of the episodes will be released starting in December of this year. So I guess take us through why do the theater thing for the first two episodes of season three, as I understand it. And then I guess what can fans expect with season three? 
Yeah. So uh, the first two episodes launch in theaters this Friday, um, and then they they not just the rest of the episodes. These first two episodes will also release to streaming. It's not like mm. you. I had some people get all upset. Like, well, if I can't go to the theater, I guess I'm never going to see this. And I'm like, oh, ah, okay. Yeah. No, no, nothing has ever been released to theaters and then never been also released elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, as always, these episodes will be available free and easy um, like they always are. The show will always be free and easy. There will be other places where you can watch it where you have to pay. But in the Chosen app, when you go, you know, look up the Chosen in your app store or look up the Chosen uh, on your streaming platform or device, um, you will be able to watch it free and easy. Um, now, uh, but not just yet. Starting the first two episodes are coming out in theaters. We wanted to do that for several reasons. We want to do that because people want to see it on the big screen. People yeah. want to gather together. It's a good income opportunity for us. Uh, it's going to be very expensive. I hope we make money on it. Mm. Uh, you know, it's hard to make money in theaters. Most movies never ever make money in the theaters. That's usually that's just kind of the launch point, and then it then they make their money elsewhere. But uh, it'd be great if we could, uh, you know, make money in the theaters. We we could certainly use it. Less than five percent of the people who watch The Chosen uh, ever pay for it. Uh, they, they have the opportunity to choose if they want to what we call pay it forward, or uh, eventually there's an opportunity to donate. Uh, that's going to be coming here soon. Um, but the, you, it's an optional payment if you if you want to do that. But because less than 5% of the people who watch it pay for it, uh, we obviously need income from other sources as well, whether it's our you know, merchandise or uh, you know, TV deals or streaming deals or theatrical release like this. And uh, so that, that's why we did it. It's never been done before with a TV show, uh, but we think it's a cool opportunity. In fact, I think other shows are starting to maybe consider that for like one night only. But last year when we released our Christmas special in theaters, which was uh, one new 30-minute episode along with a bunch of music videos, and it did $14 million at the box office without us even really trying, mm. uh, we were like, wow, okay, this isn't a cool opportunity. And, and, and the fans are going to be excited about it as well. And uh, they get a chance to see it early before it comes to streaming. And if they want to pay for that, that's great. If not, if you can't get to the theater, it's going to be a, for, uh, easy for you to watch in uh, December, like we always do. And each episode will come out one week at a time. And then we're hoping to release episodes seven and eight together in a, a limited theatrical run as well, uh, because those are going to be huge. Uh, the scope of those episodes is huge and uh, they belong in the big screen. Okay. Well, uh, I'll ask you off air. I'll get all the, the 411 on everything. I don't want to share it with my audience, guys. You're not that special. No, but I do want to ask this because you mentioned something earlier that I keyed in on. And obviously my audience, my audience knew I would. The masculinity of Jesus, obviously we're very concerned about here because we've seen Jesus depicted as Jesus meek and mild and meek in the modern parlance of like, oh, he's constantly navel gazing and just carrying around sheep and telling women how good they look in their tunics, but not ever doing anything masculine at all. Like he, it wasn't like he was a carpenter or anything, but are we going to see a depiction of Jesus clearing the temple in any of the chosen series? And before you answer that, because the answer needs to be yes, I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, give you your spoiler. Every time I've seen that depicted in film, it's either depicted by this wispy haired blonde man, or it's like a series. I think that was on history channel or Nat Geo years ago, where it was almost like Jesus was like, Oh, I don't want to be doing this. And Oh, you're making me sad. And it was just the worst. I was so excited for that scene and I was so let down. So Dallas, don't let me down. Are we going to see the lion of Judah in your series? <laughs> Well, uh, I, I don't give spoilers, but I'll say this. Um, it, I would say it would be quite a, a big miss and quite an obvious uh, betrayal of, 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 of a very important sequence of events that leads to his crucifixion if we didn't portray that. And if we do portray it, 
we will portray it in the way that the chosen portrays Bible stories, which is authentic and accurate with the appropriate backstory, the appropriate setup Mm -hmm. in a way that would actually happen. And uh, on no level do I believe that if Jesus was turning over the tables in the temple and actually fashioned a whip and was using a whip to, to, to raise some hell, uh, no pun intended uh, in, in, in that, in that sequence, um, uh, anything other than that would be uh, pretty offensive in my book. So uh, yeah, I, I would say uh, it's pretty safe to say that if we do that scene, we're going to do it right. Um, and uh, I think you'll see, I think you've seen in the first two seasons, and I think you're going to see in season three, I think you see it in the trailer for season three, mm-hmm. Jesus being the Lion of Judah. It's one of the things my wife loves, and it's been this this moment in the trailer has gotten a lot of attention when uh, when the Pharisee says to him, Jesus, if you do not renounce your words, we will have no choice but to follow the book of Moses. And Jesus leans forward and, and like a total badass, I think, says, mm-hmm. uh, I am the law of Moses. It's kind of my breaking bad uh, moment. My, you know, I am the one who knocks. Yeah. Um, is, uh, and, uh, you know, do, do, is that from, is that a quote from scripture? No, it's not. But is it plausible theologically? I do believe it is. And I do believe it's, it represents Jesus as King. That's what my wife was saying. She's like, he is the law. He is the word. He is the mm. creator. He is it. Nothing, n- none of this stuff. When someone tries to quote the law of Moses to him, he's like, bro, I wrote the law of Moses. This is my thing. Uh, I am the law of Moses. Uh, that's him being a king. That's him being uh, who I who I believe that he was. And uh, and I think you'll see that in season three, and you'll for sure see that uh, leading up to the crucifixion. So Dallas, I will take that as a yes. And if you <laughs> sure. still film in Texas, I just got to tell you, I'm in Oklahoma. So if you need a ginger money changer or you know pigeon salesman or something like that, I can shave this off. I don't know that how many gingers there were in the Middle East during that time, but is it plausible? One of them looked like me with green eyes, maybe, right? Yeah, so not, it, not a, yeah, it's not plausible there was a Jewish ginger, but there it's plausible that there was a ginger from another continent that might have come in to try to sell things. So you know, you never know. Right. So if you have a scene and you need some Irish uh, looking angry person that needs to be part of that, the dude, I'm in, I can drive to Texas. That's not a problem. But I do want to talk about the future of the chosen. So obviously if you go to the website, guys, it's in the show notes and guys in the show notes, that's how you can get it. If you don't want to just go to the app store, you can go through the website. We're going to make it as easy for you as possible to see the first two seasons and then on into season three. But it says that you're going to wrap this, this thing up in seven seasons. So some people take that to mean it's going to take you seven years to get to the passion, right? It's going to take you seven years to get to whatever. Maybe you'll kill Jesus sometime in season five or six. And then the, the season seven is going to be the acts of the apostles. And then maybe that'll splinter off into a bunch of other different series. But part of me is like, okay, I want to know the answer to that. And you're not going to tell me, but I'm going to ask you anyway, to just give me all the answers. But also how long can you keep this cast together? I always worry about that and wonder about that. You mentioned Breaking Bad, uh, er, Mr. Ermintrout. That's an older gentleman. And so when he was cast in the same role in Better Call Saul, I was like, ooh, what if he doesn't wake up tomorrow? Like you can't replace him. You know what I mean? So talk to me a little bit about how you're going to navigate going through seven seasons and you know what does life look like after that? Yeah, well, we haven't hid from the fact that uh, we do believe, uh, we do intend for the crucifixion to be season six. And uh, season seven will be the aftermath. We won't be getting into the Acts of the Apostles in this show. Uh, there, we want to take our time with what we've got within the Gospels. Um, so that there's that. So season season six is the is we're going to be spending a lot of time on the crucifixion, and then season seven is the uh, spoiler alert: he he does come back to life, and uh, we'll be covering that in the, the aftermath of that. Um, as to the cast, I mean, we we have contracts with the cast members uh, through all seven seasons. Um, and uh, so we have no intention of, of 
losing them. Uh, obviously, sometimes things happen. In season one, before we had these these longer term contracts, uh, one of the actors uh, ended up taking another gig. We didn't have them locked up because we we didn't know what our schedule was going to be, which mm. is fair. We're, we're thrilled for thrilled for him. Uh, and then the, the the actor that replaced him uh, ended up having a family uh, had medical emergency, couldn't come back for season two. So the character of Big James has had three actors, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the third one is sticking with us. Um, there's another, uh, there's another role that unfortunately is going to have to be replaced, uh, here before season four, but for the most part, um, I mean, the plan is to hold on to all of them. Uh, that's the intention of course. And, uh, we've only got, I mean, it's not seven more years. It's a total of seven seasons. So mm -hmm. season four, we intend to begin shooting in uh, sp spring of 2023. That means season five is the, you know, the year after that. So there's four, four more seasons. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we, uh, we want to hold on to them and, uh, we want to make sure that the show is is exciting enough and artistically fulfilling enough that they want to be here, even if, uh, regardless of their contract. So uh, that's the, that's the plan. And, uh, we're excited about that. And I, I don't think anyone uh, is going to be passing away of old age anytime soon. All right. Sounds good. Well, we're going to wrap up here with this segment. So there's a segment I like to do towards the end of some of my interviews. It's called, what would you say to someone that said, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, and I'm going to fill in the blank, but here's the thing. This is lightning round. So you get 30 seconds maximum to respond to whatever it is I say. It could be a little thing. could be a big thing. It could be a compliment. It could be a critique. But I'm going to throw several of these out there at you. You get 30 seconds each. So you up for it? I'm up for it. I'll, I'll, I won't take the full 30 seconds. Okay. All right. Here's the first one. What would you say to someone that said, I like white Jesus better? <laughs> Don't watch our show. I thought that one would be pretty funny, but yeah, there are people that would say stupid crap like that. All right, let's go to the next one. What would you say to someone that said it is sacrilegious to create artistic depictions of Jesus who is part of the Godhead? Uh, I would say th they're probably referring to what some people uh, talk about the second commandment, which talks about do not create a false idol. Do not create any depiction of another idol. Uh, there's also people talk about that. You've never seen the face of God. Don't show the face of God. Uh, two things I would say, number one, we're not creating an idol. No one is worshiping the show. No one is worshiping Jonathan Rumi. Uh, this, we are not claiming that, that Jonathan's portrayal of Jesus is Jesus. Mm. And we are certainly not portraying a God to be worshiped. So there's nothing, there's that. Uh, the other thing I would say is that, um, uh, the people who say you should never see the face of God and should never like, no, there's a, I remember there was one critic who was saying, uh, there's a reason God gave us words, uh, and didn't show, we, we don't know what Jesus looked like because he wanted us to focus on the words. I'm like, wow, that really sucks for those who were around Jesus, uh, mm. who followed Jesus during that time where they just like, wow, we are really violating the scripture by seeing Jesus's face every day. Uh, this is really a problem because we're only supposed to be focused on the words. I think those are, uh, intellectually, um, immature positions. I would say, um, doesn't mean they shouldn't be said. It's fine to have your position, but I don't think that they, uh, I don't think that, I don't think they're an accurate understanding of what we're doing. All right. Next lightning round question here. What would you say to someone that said, I'm uncomfortable with giving money to fund entertainment that I haven't seen yet? Uh, good. That's certainly fair. So don't, <laughs> um, uh, you know, watch, watch season one or, you know, and if you feel led to pay for it, then pay for it. Uh, I would say that what's odd about that statement would be, I think every time you ever go see a movie, you're funding a movie you've never seen before. There it so, is. Like people, we're not asking you to, we're, we're asking you to, we're not even asking you to do anything. We're saying the show's free. If yeah. you want us to keep going, if you want us to be able to finance future seasons, someone's got to pay for it at some point and you have the choice to do so. So, uh, but, but look at it as optional payment, not I'm financing something that I've never seen before. The people who did that were the 16,000 investors, uh, uh, after our short film back in the day who invested 
they were investing in the show mm. and uh, their investment looks pretty darn good right now. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, if you don't want to pay anything towards until you've seen it, well, then I'm afraid you're going to probably not see another movie again yep. um, as long as you live. But uh, that's also your choice. And don't, so don't, don't pay for it until you've seen it. That's fine with me. It's your choice. All right, there you go. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, Jonathan Rumi is the best Jesus on film yet? Agreed. Next one. What would you say to someone that said, all Christian entertainment is corny? I would say uh, anytime you start any sentence with all, um, you are most likely going to be incorrect. And sometimes you're going to be prejudiced, racist, sexist. Uh, so just avoid sentences to start with the word all. But uh, And I would say that that's uh, obviously... Uh, teach his own, but I don't believe that all Christian entertainment is corny. I think that's a silly statement. Okay. Just a few more left here. What would you say to someone that said, I'm offended by the chosen? Don't watch it. Oh, you poor, you're all these, you're breaking so many hearts. You know, these people want you to be very, very concerned that they're so offended. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I love the chosen? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, that's wonderful to hear. I never gets old hearing that. All right. Last question of the day, Dallas, what would you say to someone that said, I want to know Jesus? I would say Jesus wants to know you and uh, Jesus knows you better than anyone knows you and uh, wants a personal relationship with you. And uh, that's why he came to earth was because he wanted to, uh, to, to make himself known even more because he wants you to know him. And uh, so I would encourage you to start with scripture, you know, maybe open up the book of John, which is a great book to start with. And I would encourage you to plug into a local church and not expect to understand everything immediately, to know that it's a process. But then more than anything else, I would, I would ask you to lie in your bed, arms outstretched, and say, God, make yourself known and known to me because I want to know you more. And I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not going to hear your audible voice, but I'm okay with that. I just want to, I'm, I'm willing to take the plunge. I'm willing to surrender and uh, see what happens. And, uh, and then, uh, and, and, and then indeed see what happens. All right. Well, we have covered a lot of ground in under an hour, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, brother. I appreciate this. This was a great conversation and, uh, and I love what you do and it's great. And, uh, to, to, to anyone who's listening, uh, thank you for listening. I appreciate that as well. And if you do decide to check out the show, if you haven't seen it yet, um, just know, as we've said, there's no obligation to do anything. You don't even have to give your email address if you don't want to. It's totally free and easy. What have you got to lose? Uh, and uh, and if, if, you, uh, if it speaks to you, and if you enjoy it, then keep watching. Guys, it is well worth your time, and that is in the show notes so you can get to it that way. Dallas Jenkins, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, brother, and uh, we'll talk soon. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Dallas Jenkins. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And again, I just want to remind you to text Upper Room. That's Upper Room to 727-472-3860. That's 727-472-3860 to get an application to schedule a one-on-one -on -one with Riley Meek of the Upper Room and the King's Council. And the only link I've got for you today is a link to where you can go out and watch and or support the chosen. And guys, if you have not watched seasons one and two, it is absolutely worth your time. I wouldn't just jump right into season three. I mean, you can do whatever the heck you want, but guys, it is well worth your time. A lot of you guys, I hear you talk about the shows you watch on television and they're just 
junk. Not only is the content junk, you know, it's rotting your brain from the inside. So support the chosen. I think it's well worth your time. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.